you're listening to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast, where we dive into holistic nutrition, biomedical treatments, functional medicine, low-toxicant living, and developmental strategies with a special focus on children with complex picky eating, developmental delays, and neurodevelopmental disorders. I'm your host, Shandy Lasky, integrative speech-language pathologist, pediatric feeding specialist, functional nutritional therapy practitioner, and epidemic cancer certified health coach. Together, we are changing the conversation around how we view, discuss, prevent, and treat these childhood epidemics. I am so honored to have your time and attention today. Thank you for joining me and for all of your support. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and should never be misconstrued as medical advice or a replacement for individualized care from your trusted providers. Now, without any further ado, let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. Whether you're new or a returning listener, thank you for hitting play today. I hope that you will find this episode and my content overall valuable and useful for wherever you are in your journey. Today, I want to talk more about children's physical and behavioral symptoms that are potentially correlated to the foods that they're eating. In this episode, we're going to cover the difference between food allergies, food sensitivities, and food intolerances. We're going to talk about the most common food allergies, the top eight is what they're called, and um, the most common food sensitivities that I see in my practice, as well as what I have seen, generally speaking, within the community um, of the demographics of children who I serve over the last several years. Um, I'm in many different practitioner groups and parent groups online. And so uh, sometimes I'm so overwhelmed by them, I'll be honest. If you're in them, you know exactly what I mean. Um, They can be really overwhelming. But I also have learned a lot of really interesting things. And I just always, I always want to be a provider who stays open-minded to what the people are saying you know I don't want to be this provider or professional who just sees it the way that I see it and that's that we are of course like the title today says we are going to talk about the physical and behavioral symptoms that are most commonly seen in children who are having different food reactions And lastly, we're going to cover what to do if you think that your child is experiencing these negative reactions to their foods that they're eating. So before we dive in, you know, as the disclaimer in the intro says, this is not medical advice. And um, I also just want to acknowledge, again, the research gap that exists that we have talked about here. But in case this is your first episode... This is a topic that is, I don't know, I don't feel like it should be controversial, but I guess I should say it's not conventional in nature. Not everyone would agree with all of what I'm saying, and that's okay. We're all on different paths, but I 
want to highlight the research gap that exists that I've talked about before, but basically all that means is that between the time that research is published and that it is commonly, widely known and accepted by the mainstream um, medical community and society, it's about 17 years. So we're looking at approximately two decades of a research gap. Um, and as I've said, I hope that that closes with the last two decades and um, having the internet. But, you know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. So we've got a research gap to wait for the research on the research gap. But if we think about all of this critically and we use discernment and we think about how evidence-based practice isn't just based on research, it's also based on the client's experiences and the clinician's experiences and um, so yeah so so there's a lot anecdotally that I have learned from my insights that parents have shared with me through the last several years and I've also been fortunate to learn from practitioners who have been in this field much longer than I have and um, that's accelerated my learning in this as well. So let's start with food allergies, just briefly. We're gonna just touch on food allergies, but that's not what this episode is really about. Because a food allergy, when I say allergy, I'm talking about an IgE mediated response. I'm talking about something that's a life-threatening emergency. You're going to see it right away. And, you know, usually these are going to be, um, the top eight are eggs, tree nuts, like hazelnuts, almonds, pistachios, macadamia nuts, cashews, um, cow's milk, peanuts, fish, shellfish, like shrimp, lobster, crab, soybeans, soy, and wheat. Food allergies have become in, have become more and more common. The last I knew, the last stats that I found that were available um, from Robin O'Brien, she's done a lot of great work in this field of um, advocacy for kids with food allergies and within the food system. Uh, she brought a lot of awareness to genetic, genetically modified organisms and um, their connection on how when they were introduced into the food system, a lot of food allergies also increased simultaneously. Again, that's Robin O'Brien. But anyways, I saw on her website that um, the stats for food allergies in children are at 1 in 13. And of those children... It's estimated that 30% of them have more than one life-threatening food allergy, which is pretty scary. I don't remember that being this big of an issue when I was a child, because it wasn't. Um, we've talked about before, the rates of children's chronic health issues has totally skyrocketed. We are looking at 54% of America's children and millennials today have a diagnosed chronic health condition, a diagnosable chronic health condition. 
and food allergies is included within that and often can be comorbid with other chronic health conditions as well. So I know this is very terrifying and my heart goes out to the parents of children and the children and individuals who experience food allergies, true anaphylactic food allergies, because that's, yeah, it's scary. When a kiddo has these food allergies, most parents know about it, or when it happens, it's very unquestionably an allergic reaction to said food, and it's easily identified and avoided in the future. And I believe, well, in what I've seen and what just makes sense based on what I know is that we have even more children who are presenting with food sensitivities. At least you could guess that it's approximately half of American children based just on the rates of chronic illness in the children and millennials in America. Which came first, chronic health issues or the food sensitivity um, you know, it's it, there's some chicken or the egg there that could also be considered bio-individual to each child, but it's definitely something worth considering because once food sensitivities start, they kind of go into this cascade and this spiral, and depending on what happens, what the sensitivities are, what the symptoms are, what the burden is, what the overall body burden is, what the kid's total load is, all of these symptoms could manifest differently. So it's going to be bio-individual for each child, but it's definitely something worth considering and keeping in the back of your mind. So food sensitivities um, and intolerances, they often go undetected by well-meaning parents and well-meaning professionals and providers who are supporting these families because they're not as commonly known, they're not as well understood or studied or acknowledged. Sadly, many conventional providers um, exist that still deny that there's a link between food and children's symptoms, which is, quite frankly, it's like mind-blowing to me in 2021, but here we are. And I'm really, I just really try to come from this place of non-judgment about it because... It just is what it is, and I hope that if you are with a provider who refuses to acknowledge that the food we're eating impacts health, wellness, and development, um, I hope that you find a provider that aligns more with that viewpoint. If you have not gotten the opportunity to listen to episode number three, Holistic Nutrition and Bio-Individuality, I highly encourage that you do because I cover the world of nutrition and different paradigms that exist and the food system a little bit more in depth. And I also provide some beginning steps and strategies to help clean up your family's diet and move more towards a holistic nutrition and lifestyle approach. So food sensitivities, it's not really a formal like medical diagnosis, but and it's often used as a blanket word. Um, so it it's looking more at IgG 
mediated responses rather than those IgE mediated responses that would be more with a true food allergy rather than intolerances are mostly referring to when you have a digestive issue like lacking the enzyme to properly digest and assimilate that food. So it's not so much about the immune system per se, it's not about that IgG immune system response per se, I mean. It's more about this response to the food molecules in your digestive symptom. But food intolerances and sensitivities are both considered non-life-threatening. They both are a delayed onset. They can occur within like up to three days, um, most of them. So it might be, you know, a, a lot of families, they think, well, what did my kid eat today? Nope. Think about what did your kid eat for the last three days because that is impacting them potentially um, if they are experiencing a food sensitivity or a food intolerance. So food sensitivities, what generally would fall under that is like we've been talking a lot about gluten and casein here on this podcast. That is a perfect example of a food sensitivity because gluten and casein are protein molecules that the body is reacting to, right, with the immune system's IgG response that can be measured through that biomarker testing versus a a lactose intolerance is not the protein in dairy. And lactose intolerance is created due to the lack of having the the proper enzymes to help break it down in the digestive process. And there are more than just um, lactose, of course. We could say that different um, phenol processing or things like that might fall under more of an intolerance, but really we're just getting like into semantics here with this, you guys. So, you know, I try to be like, as on it as I can with the terms just for the sake of correctness and um, making sure that I'm providing the most credible and reliable information to you. But just know that sometimes these are often used interchangeably, but it is very different than a food allergy, okay? And admittedly, I am someone who still accidentally am using them interchangeably but like I said I'm trying to be more mindful about that as we move forward just because I know that we're trying to bring more awareness and bring more distinction between them and so I'm going to try to focus on saying food reactions and when I say food reactions what I mean is this negative reaction to a food whether that is behavioral or physical or cognitive or what have you, and whether it's from a sensitivity to a protein molecule or to an intolerance of another molecule within food. 
The most common food reactions that I see among this demographic of children with complex picky eating with and without neurodevelopmental disorders, developmental delays, special needs, I see that they are sensitive to synthetic food additives first and foremost, like artificial flavors, artificial colors, food dyes, food preservatives, flavor enhancers, MSG, um, different synthetic food additives, just generally speaking. And then after this, I would say that the most common are gluten, which is the protein group found in um, wheat, barley, rye, and other gluten-containing grains, and um, also casein, the protein found in dairy, soy, um, corn, and you know, I could keep carrying on with this, but you get the point here. Those are the most common, first and foremost. So I want a little bit to, I want to talk a little bit about a pioneer in this field who I think is just such a legend. And I wish I knew more about her beyond what I've been able to find through her books and online. And that is a woman named Dr. Doris Rapp, R-A-P-P, two Ps. And she is a MD. She's a medical doctor. She is a board certified environmental specialist and pediatric allergist for children. Um, and to be honest with you, I've I've tried to look and see where she is these days, and I just um, I haven't gotten some super clear answers on that. So if someone listening to this happens to know, I am pretty certain she's retired at this point and is no longer working. Um, but her work in this field was incredible in terms of children's health and food and environmental sensitivities and intolerances. And she referred to them all under the blanket of allergies. So this was back, the book that I have, I have a few books of her, but the one in my hand is written back in, let's see here, 1991. And so um, it's just a wealth of information. The one that I'm referring to is titled, is this your child? And the reason that she um, became so well known was because she was featured on a show, the Phil Donahue show. Some of you may be familiar with this. It was a talk show back during that, during that time in the eighties. And, um, cause this is in 91 and it's actually dedicated to Phil Donahue. So I imagine, yeah, so it was back in the eighties, early nineties that she would have been on this show and she went on there with these children that she had helped and showed their dramatic improvements in behavior, in their health, wellness and development, all of these different signs and symptoms and she showed their improvements before and after the exposure of this food and it was quite profound and I just could not do this podcast without bringing some awareness to Dr. Doris Rapp 
And so I want to finish reading her bio. And like I said, I believe that she's retired. So this is in 1991. But it says she is a clinical assistant professor of pediatrics at the state University of New York at Buffalo. She is the founder of the Practical Allergy Foundation in Buffalo, and she is the past president of the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. Environmental Medical Specialist and Pediatric Allergist for Children. So she used a overarching term of food and environmental allergies, and it, it doesn't really matter. Again, this is all semantics. I'm Many people still use all of these terms interchangeably, but we're just trying to get some different differentiation through here just to bring some awareness. Um, But regardless of what we call it, the point here is that the food is causing more of a trigger than a support. It's causing potentially more harm than it is good. It's hurting more than it's helping, okay? Sensitivities are generally considered the immune system's response to the food proteins measured by immunoglobulin biomarker testing such as IgG and IgA biomarkers, etc. Symptoms can appear immediately or days later, like I uh, mentioned. And I advise my clients to watch for about three days when they're introducing a new supplement Um, a brand new food, or if they're reintroducing a food that they previously eliminated to check to see if there was a reaction. I say wait and watch up to three days, as I mentioned. I also want to take a moment to shout out to Julie Matthews of Nourishing Hope. I, If you have been listening to the podcast consistently, you know that I shout her out quite frequently because I've learned a lot from her. And I'm a student of her Bioindividual Nutrition Institute, and it's really elevated my practice as a holistic nutrition provider and as a developmental provider, and it's also helped me with my own journey and um, helped me support my family and friends and my loved ones as well, because now I have this very trained eye to recognize the different various food sensitivities and intolerances, you know, these food reactions um, and common patterns that are seen that would be seen as symptoms and signs of these food reactions. So what would these look like in children, especially kiddos who have complex picky eating and these developmental conditions? What would that look like? Some of the behavioral and cognitive symptoms would be, but are not limited to, um, having a very strong preference for certain foods, having a really strong cravings for perhaps certain brands or certain flavors. Uh, You might see food refusal and self-restriction and tantruming around food choices often, not just here and there. I'm talking often where it's like you get anxious, they get anxious around food because it's like so tense. Um, You might see hyperactivity, aggression, social withdrawal, 
being a bit more lethargic, a lack of alertness, general meltdowns, tantrums, repetitive behaviors, strangely timed inappropriate inappropriate laughter, anxiety, separation anxiety perhaps. Um, physical symptoms might look like red ears and or red cheeks. Sometimes it's just one versus both. Uh, I've heard that too. Uh, again, physical uh, food cravings could fall under this as well. This is kind of overlapping because you could see that or as a behavioral or physical symptom. Uh, constipation, diarrhea, or when they are alternating between the two, that also can be related to a food sensitivity. Different skin conditions such as eczema, chicken skin, uh, other skin reactions like rashes or hives. You might also see eye wrinkles or them doing what <laughs> Dr. Doris Rapp calls the allergic salute, which is where uh, you know it when you see it. It's the kid takes like the heel or the palm of their hand and swipes up their nose, pushing their nose up. And that's how they're wiping their nose all the time. And so sometimes you even see if a kiddo's doing it like all the time, a kiddo who's had a chronic food sensitivity or environmental sensitivity, because a lot of these, a lot of these you guys, could also be environmental sensitivities as well. But you might see with this allergic salute in this kid who's wiping their nose with their hand, you'll see they sometimes get a little crease on the top of their nose. And sometimes that's a sign that it's not just that your kid is a sickly child, but it might be a sign that food is causing this low-level inflammatory response that is causing this kind of like chronic immune system issue. You might see gastrointestinal pain or discomfort and also uh, food sensitivities and food intolerances. These symptoms, um, you also will see that intestinal hyperpermeability, aka leaky gut, that we talked a lot about in a previous episode here as well. So once you get into all of that, once you get into leaky gut and increased hyperintestinal permeability, it can create this issue that is a spiral. So if you've got leaky gut and these food sensitivities that are then contributing to leaky gut and the gut is not being healed and sealed, then more foods that are unproperly digested can enter into the bloodstream and create these food sensitivities as well. So if you're listening to this and you find yourself suspecting this may be something that your child is dealing with in some way, shape, or form, which I'm assuming is maybe likely since you're listening to this podcast, um, if you're a parent. So for action steps, I would say 
start with what's obvious for you. Start with like, are there certain foods that you just know that your child craves consistently, seemingly constantly? Perhaps they can only have a certain brand of a certain food or flavor, certain flavors of certain foods. Make little, make a note of that. Make a list of those and think about those for yourself and for your child. Those right there might be some of the intolerances. And I say this as someone who previously was a self-proclaimed carboholic and a cheese connoisseur. I loved pasta and pizza and breads and different cheeses. Like that was my whole thing. I loved these foods. And it turned out that this was all true for myself as well, you guys. But it looks differently in a child than it does in adults because children carry themselves differently than adults. So, you know, for example, like in adults, you might see anxiety differently than you do in a child. You might just see that differently. You might see aggression differently. You might see an adult handle themselves very differently during a headache and a migraine than a child would. So just something to think about. So the issue with food sensitivity testing is that, so we're, we're talking about IgG testing for food sensitivity testing in terms of biomarker testing, and there are scattered opinions about this type of testing, and there are other various forms of testing out there too, but this is like the main and most common, so this is just what I'm chatting about now, and this is the one that is most commonly going to be available through your, um, through your child's pediatrician if you can work with them on why you want to run it in the first place, because, so, it can result in a false negatives and false positives. So because of the rates and false negatives and false positives, some practitioners or doctors, they don't love to run it because it's not always accurate. But I think that they can be really helpful, especially if you've got a kiddo who's really hypersensitive to a lot of things or you've got a kiddo who has a neurodevelopmental disorder or complex picky eating, I think it's worth exploring um, if you have the capacity and the means to do that. I think it's worth exploring because even if some of the results are false, well, some of them are also positive, you know, like actually uh, real when I say positive. Um, They're legitimate and so they're worth removing. So, okay, I'm going to use myself as another example here. In my own health journey, I, by the time I had removed gluten and dairy, I didn't know that by removing them, so this is something I want you to know, when you remove them from your diet or your child's diet, 
for an extended period of time, for over a week, you have now increased the chance of it skewing this test because this test is only a snapshot of your immune system's response at that time. So if you've removed that food, well then your body is less is having less of a reaction potentially if there is one to that food. And so um by the time I I I didn't know that when I took when I started my journey. Um my provider didn't tell me and that's fine that's no fault to them that I could have looked that up too I just didn't ask and they didn't tell so I like to give that information now because if you're someone that wants that black and white baseline data to look and say okay here's where we started and in three months or six months or nine months or a year we're going to do this test again and we're going to see what improvements we made by eliminating it if you want that type of data and you are someone who likes to look at things like that, then I encourage you to to do that IgG biomarker testing or whatever food sensitivity testing that you decide to go with. I encourage you to do it prior to the elimination phase of, of diet if that's the route you want to go. Um... And sometimes, just keep in mind, sometimes it's not the protein that's the problem. It's not always the protein that's causing the reaction. And so that is another reason why oftentimes these biomarker, these IgG biomarker tests aren't looked at as being fully credible because, like, they are really only measuring your body's response to the food proteins is my understanding. And so you might have a sensitivity to uh, phenols in apples and berries, or your your child may, but that doesn't come up on the food sensitivity test if it's just an IgG biomarker test because it's not the protein, it's a phenol compound. Oh my goodness. I have to just interrupt myself right now and share a little giggle and what just happened because you probably heard the beep, beep, beep that just happened in the background here. I told you in my first episode that I'm going to try to keep this a very minimally edited podcast because I'm trying to push through any perfectionism tendencies and just put the good content out into the world even when it's not perfect. And that beep, beep, beep <laughs> was a um, a snowplow in the parking lot outside of my office here. And because it is not going away anytime soon, I don't know, or it was there longer than I cared to wait, I am now sitting on the floor of my closet And so if the sound quality sounds significantly different or much different and it's distracting to you, I apologize. We are just working with what we have right now. Um, I live in Denver, Colorado, and at the time I'm recording this, it's Wednesday, St. Patrick's Day. And this, the weekend that we just had, (laughs) I hear it, I hear it, beep, beep, beep. I hope you can't hear it every time, my goodness. Um... I hope it's better now that I'm in here. I can barely hear it. But anyways, we had a snowstorm 
a huge blizzard this past weekend and this is the first plow that I have or it's the first like beep 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 type of plow that I've seen come through here and anyways timing right timing but we've got to push through it because I want to get this good content out and I only have windows of opportunity blocked off to do this so let's go let's get back to it shall we so those are the issues that I that I just mentioned before we got distracted by the beep 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 snow plow (laughs) those are the issues with food sensitivity testing the only way like the gold standard to really know if your child is sensitive to a food is through a guided elimination and reintroduction of that food and as I said before you do that though if you're the kind of person that needs that baseline testing make sure you do that with biomarker testing before you start eliminating the diet or eliminating foods from your child's diet because once you start eliminating it's going to skew those test results and I not only mean food sensitivity testing but I also mean testing for celiac disease too if that is a concern of yours because if you remove gluten and then you suspect that you your child might have celiac disease it is the test is going to be skewed you're going to have to gluten your kid in a major way it's going to cause you know I just I want you to be aware um so you can order those food sensitivity tests through a functional medicine doctor or a holistic nutrition provider um that are a little bit more in depth and more comprehensive Or you can chat with your child's pediatrician, like I mentioned. Sometimes you can get your uh, insurance to cover that as just a standard lab when you're running um, that IgG lab. But make sure that you're differentiating. So, for example, I asked my mom to have these ran on herself. And the doctor said they knew what she was talking about through and through when she got the lab back they had only ran IgE well we knew we know that she doesn't have any food allergies we wanted to know if she had food sensitivities so again it's 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 very misunderstood and there's not a ton of like concrete um there's not a huge body of concrete evidence around this. So it's not commonly known traditionally. And like I said, some of these doctors are hesitant to run some of these tests because it can have false results. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have its time and place. So when I ran mine, to come back to that, um, about the false positives and the false negatives, when I ran mine, I had already been... I had cleaned up my diet. I was organic, gluten-free, dairy-free, and for the most part, you know, like pretty uh, super healthy diet, but I knew that I had some some stuff going on still that was contributing to my gut health and was contributing to potential like malabsorption issues because I wasn't absorbing my food totally. And so we ran the tests and it showed that I was reactive to dairy, or I'm sorry, gluten. I wasn't reactive to dairy, allegedly, I believe is what it said. But it said that I was sensitive to 
Red Snapper. And I have never had Red Snapper, you guys. I've never had Red Snapper in my whole life. So why did that one pop up? I don't know. My other highest sensitivities were sardines and salmon at the time. And so maybe is it possible that because these higher seafood fish sensitivities showed up, maybe there was some sort of, I don't know, skewing of this test and red snapper went off. Or maybe it just knows that I would be sensitive to red snapper if I had it, perhaps. But I've never had red snapper. So none of the antibodies in my body should have come up for going for for going after red snapper okay so that was a false a false for me however one that was definitely correct that I didn't know or realize were just like I said sardines and salmon I was eating sardines and salmon at least once a week um I also had it came up I had a sensitivity to eggs which I did not know and I had a sensitivity to cantaloupe and some other things but these were were the main ones um that I remember being surprised by and I remember thinking well these are all so healthy <laughs> nutrient dense I don't want to cut these foods this is not not what I want to do but they popped up on this test so I'm going to see what happens. And at the time, I I wouldn't say that I had acne, but I had these like little pimples, like little poppable pimples around my mouth area and some up on my forehead. And within three weeks of eliminating those foods, all of it cleared up, all of it. And I forgot one time that I had this sensitive, shortly after this test was done, I had cantaloupe and I forgot, like, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I totally forgot, but I ate a lot of cantaloupe for one sitting. And let's just say digestively, it was very, very obvious based on the movements so personal oh man anyways it was very obvious that it did not work for my body so there there is value to these tests but when it comes down to it sometimes the best way is just to eliminate it and then add it back in so I say three weeks as a general rule, but some take, some foods do take longer than that for the immune system's response to calm down. And then after three weeks, reintroduce it. Now, some foods you could like see it reaction after a week, I'm sure, but I just say general rule of thumb, let's just set it at three weeks. Um, but like, for example, like we've talked about in other episodes, gluten antibodies Uh, the antibodies to gluten can take up to four to six months to see that total improvement. But you should be able to, like after three weeks of being gluten-free for most children, you're going to see some improvement pretty quickly. 
not the full improvement until four to six months, like I just mentioned, but at that three, three to four week mark, you could then reintroduce gluten back in and see how they do. And most of the children I'm willing to bet would have a very obvious reaction if it was a sensitivity that they um, were dealing with. And again, these symptoms that I was talking about earlier to describe these, we're thinking about food and environmental sensitivities here. So when you reintroduce a food, you want to be really mindful that you're not introducing other new foods or other foods that they've eliminated you're not you're doing one at a time okay to watch for the reaction and not just foods but also environmentally so for example you are probably not going to want to try out that new detergent or what have you um, that week you can choose to eliminate foods one at a time or multiple at a time this is all going to be really dependent on your child and where you're starting it's very bio-individual. If there is complex picky eating involved as well, then please consider seeking some professional guidance from a qualified provider or providers assembling a, a, a team or a collaboration of providers who are knowledgeable in holistic nutrition and development and children who have complex feeding needs, um, Particularly, I am biased towards feeding specialists like OTs and SLPs in this realm. At the time of this podcast being released, I personally do have a couple distance coaching openings for parents of children who have complex picky eating, developmental conditions, who are ready to take a look at how they can change their child's diet and lifestyle to improve their overall health and wellness and development. You can self-schedule a complimentary discovery call and apply for distance coaching via my website, speakingofhealthandwellness.com, which is linked for you in the show notes, and these services are offered internationally, and I start off with a four-month distance coaching package to support you along this journey. And again, at this time, I have a limited availability when this goes live, but I would be honored to speak with you and see if we would be a good fit to work together. Not to toot my own horn, but there is a ton of valuable information that can get you started and take you through several of the beginning strategies and steps to start identifying your food's reaction, not just in this episode, but in these first 10 episodes of Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. So I hope that if this is your first, second, or third episode that you're listening into, if this resonates with you, you can take the time to go back through these beginning podcast episodes as much of this content can be understood more fully with the knowledge obtained in those episodes as well. So back to action steps though, looking at food sensitivities, reactions, intolerances, what have you. Many children and adults are sensitive to processed food chemicals, food additives, synthetic man-made food chemicals that have been labeled, generally recognized as safe by the FDA, 
but they have not actually been thoroughly and adequately tested for consumer health safety and environmentally environmental safety. If you're eating what's referred to as the standard American diet, and that's where you're starting and that's where your child is starting. So I'm thinking of these household names like Kellogg's and General Mills and Campbell's and all, you know, you know them. The ones that we've grown up with, that's the standard American diet. And I just, I highly encourage that you look closer at those ingredient labels and that we start with cleaning up the diet first and foremost when thinking about these negative food reactions. So for more information on this and a deeper dive on that, please go back and check out the episode number three on holistic nutrition and bioindividuality as a starting place and then work through the episodes on gluten-free and casein-free diets that came before this one. So when I say clean up the diet, you may know what I mean, but just in case, um, what I mean is this. When we are thinking about food, we can be thinking about whole foods, plant and animal-based whole foods, foods from the earth, or we might be thinking about whole foods that have been made into a food product. And I'm not demonizing all food products, and I don't want to make it sound like I, like I, all I eat and all I expect you to eat is whole foods all day, every day. I certainly don't live in that world and I don't expect my clients to, although that is the reality for some people for some short time. And that's fantastic for some people. Um, And I fall into that category as well. I was, I did when I was on the autoimmune paleo protocol, that was very helpful in my journey. That was, um, one experience that I have had with elimination and reintroduction diets was through the autoimmune paleo protocol. Um, so I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but what I'm saying, I feel like I'm just like disclaimer after disclaimer right now. What I'm saying is that don't think that I eat just whole foods all the time, all day, every day, and that that is what I'm expecting from you because that's not what I'm expecting. But when we clean up the diet, what we're aiming to do is we're aiming to reduce the amount of ingredients overall and improve the quality of those ingredients that are found in the food products that we're eating that are not in their whole food form. So if you're eating a bread, if you're eating um, you know, anything that's been made out of any sort of flour product in, in whatever way, is it organic? What is it exactly? How many ingredients does this food that came in a package or a box, how many ingredients does it have and what are those ingredients? An easy way to start cleaning up the diet in this way is by choosing products that have been USDA certified organic. They have the USDA certified organic seal on them, the one with the circle that's like divided in half. You know it when I when you see it, I'm sure. This automatically means that it's been certified to contain less harmful agricultural chemical byproducts and residues and the ingredients are not or have not been created with genetically modified foods or organisms.
before my clients ever go into an elimination diet of any sort, I encourage them to clean up the diet first. We're cleaning up the quality first. So you can start with the Dirty Dozen, the Clean 15, outlined by the Environmental Working Group, focusing on cleaner produce. And then after that, you can focus on upgrading your animal product quality to being more organic and more grass-fed, pasture-raised, wherever possible. And or you could also start with breakfast, right? most important meal of the day you could clean up breakfast first and go from there so you're going from regular conventional eggs to organic eggs or to local eggs from backyard chickens from someone that you know those are the best the best around you know assuming that you ask what they're eating um but we buy one we buy eggs where the chickens have literally eaten just grass and bugs and all the good things that chickens should eat And those eggs are noticeably different visually and from a biochemical standpoint. um, Research has shown the nutrition across those eggs, the profile of nutrition is different. Uh, But back to breakfast, you could go from uh, cereal to organic cereal, pancakes to organic pancakes, oatmeal to organic oatmeal. You see where I'm going with this. This is cleaning up the diet, and I talk more about this in detail in episode three, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I did want to spend some time because we can't really talk about food reactions without talking about how these man-made synthetic chemicals in our food system are impacting our children's health, wellness, and development directly. These food reactions that we're, we're talking about, there's so much more than just gluten and casein found in dairy that I've been covering in these past few episodes. Those protein molecules are certainly common sensitivities, but if you were to remove gluten or casein together or separately, but not clean up the diet and just continue on with the child eating a standard American diet um, of mostly processed white foods and food dyes and refined sugars and artificial flavors and MSG and all of that, then you likely, very likely, would not see as much improvement as you would if you focused on fully cleaning up the diet before removing gluten and casein. And the reason is because it's kind of like an onion. We're peeling back these different layers of sensitivity or reaction. And I want to acknowledge that all of this is so much easier said than done. As I've told you, if this were all easy, my job would not exist. It is a lot to navigate. And there's a lot that is still unknown or still highly debated or controversial in nature when it really doesn't have to be because um, we all just want kids to be healthy, right? That's all, all of our mutual common goal. But yeah, and I also just want to acknowledge the different levels of privilege that it takes to have access to these quality, quality foods. And um, I encourage you to just keep doing your best when and where you can, whatever that looks like for you aiming for different small sustainable changes that lead to big impacts. And when I say small sustainable, I mean small changes that you can stick to 
we don't want you just changing all these things if it's not sustainable to you and your family. So aim for small changes that lead to big impacts. And I outlined some of those in episode three as well for you. Uh, Like I said, around cleaning up the diet and food sensitivities and things like that. But between episode three, the last, um, well, really, I mean, from three to this episode, like if you listened to all of that, that is so much content and so much value, uh, totally free at your fingertips right now for your listening where it's going to give you that beginning level knowledge and insight to start this journey. And like I said, at the time of this going live, I do have some limited availability, some openings for my distance coaching um, that is available for you to check out and self-schedule a complimentary discovery call at speakingofhealthandwellness.com. I will link that in the show notes. Um, but yeah, this is this is all a journey and I would be honored to support you with it and and I am honored to support you with it. If you're here, then I'm honored that you're here and that you're taking the time to look further into what might be going on with your child or with your clients if you're a professional. I'm, I'm grateful that you took the time and I hope that this was uh, valuable for you. I hope that it resonated with you and thank you so very much for your patience with my switcheroo of locations and the beep beep beeps in the background. I hope you can't hear too many of them. And yeah, we're going to keep elaborating on these topics, but um, a big piece of what I do in the work that I do with kids with complex picky eating and developmental conditions is navigating food and environmental sensitivities because food and environmental reactions and sensitivities and intolerances, these impact the central nervous system. And when it impacts the central nervous system, it impacts overall health, wellness, and development. And that's why we're here. That's what we're doing here. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you for pushing play. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day and... Yeah, take care and I will talk to you soon. Thanks again for listening to Speaking of Health and Wellness, the podcast. I'm so grateful you've taken the time. For any of the references mentioned in the show, head over to speakingofhealthandwellness.com. If this episode resonated with you or inspired you, it would mean so much to me if you took a moment to subscribe, write a review, share it on social media, or with someone in your life who could really benefit from this information. Your support helps this podcast and the overall message and mission of Speaking of Health and Wellness reach more people. If you share on Instagram, tag me so I can personally thank you for listening. If you're on Facebook, come join our free community group of like-minded parents and professionals. The direct link is in the podcast description. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks again so much and take care.